Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's, let's pray real quick before we jump in. Father, thank you for another day to serve you, to learn about you, so that we would be effective witnesses for your glory. Thank you, God, for who you are, how patient you are in working with people. Uh, and Father, how our prayers do matter in the midst of uh, turmoil and sinful situations. You do hear us, and we thank you, God, for that. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two weeks ago, of course, last week we had our meeting, two weeks ago, we got into Deuteronomy 9. And the big thing about Deuteronomy 9 is the continuation of the emphasis on the heart of people. That is the main problem. Let me draw your attention to some interesting things. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, when Yahweh your Elohim has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. Remember, Israel is known as a stiff-necked people. We would say a hard-headed people. Anybody ever dealt with anybody that's hard-headed? Don't point any fingers. So, <laughs> I was going to say, I like how Laverne and Cheryl both point at one another. That's good. Hard-headed people. Stiff-necked people. In fact, that's what they're called. Uh, let me see here. Uh, I can't find it right now. It's in this passage, though. Anyway, he calls them that, stiff-necked people. Notice it's not based on their merits. There's no merit that they bring to the situation. The fact is, is that the reason why they're coming in to possess this land at this time is because the nations who currently inhabit that land are deserving of judgment. Now, I've never done this study. I've only noticed it in passing. But it might be an interesting study for someone to do if you're looking at trying to tackle the Bible and read it from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation all the way through and to be watching for something as you go. And the interesting thing is to see what happens in order for nations to merit judgment. Because it almost seems likened in some instances, and again, I can't recall it from the top of my mind. It almost seems like in some instances as to where each nation has um, I don't know what else to say except a coffee cup. And it seems like that as they are doing evil, that cup gets filled and filled and filled. And when it hits the brim of the cup, the Lord comes in and judges. That's almost seem what it, like it goes. And you're probably familiar with some phrases like, um, they're, they're, they, they, have, uh, they, uh, they have filled it with the cup of their iniquity. Those types of things. Well, here are some things like that. Uh, that their iniquity has run over is some of the phrases that they use in order to describe some of that stuff. It almost seems like that God will tolerate sin for only so long. And in the midst of tolerating that sin, He is actually exercising opportunities to express the need for justice or to provide the means of relief or to just simply promote Christ uh, to these people uh, in order to rescue them from that. And because of not listening or not responding to greater revelation that he gives, he then takes them out because the evidence is overwhelming against them. So notice this idea is that Israel is actually being brought in in order to be the judgment tool of God's hands against wickedness. Notice in verse 5 it deals with the heart again. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the Lamb, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your Elohim is driving them out before you. Now watch this. In order to confirm the oath 
which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice that the definitive, decisive factor in this situation is God's word, and then it is specified from his oath, what he spoke forward, to the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now let's refresh this for just one second real quick. What is the significance of the Abrahamic covenant? Do we know? It is unconditional. That's the biggest thing. It is unconditional. There is no, and get this guys, sometimes this is hard for people to reason with because we always want to put limits on grace. There is no amount or magnitude of sin that Abraham could have committed in his life in order to nullify the promise that that God made to him. Now that's insane. It is unbelievable to think that Abraham could have received this promise from God and lived the rest of his life as a godless pagan chasing after crazy, idolatrous things and God would have still held fast his promise to make this happen. Okay, We see that because it's reiterated to Isaac and it's also reiterated to Jacob. What are the three factors of the Abrahamic promise? Do you remember? Land is the big one. Seed is the other one, and blessing is the other one. In fact, I was talking with Laverne about this just a minute ago. The seed promise has been fulfilled. The blessing promise has been fulfilled. But the land promise has never been fulfilled. And let me show it, let me show it to you real quick, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it briefly before we jump forward. We really need two hours of Sunday school today is what we need. But if you would turn back to Genesis 17, don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you, unless the weather continues to be bad. Genesis 17. Well, guess what? Everybody buckle in. I'm sorry, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, look at that. Genesis 15. We're going to look at 18 through 21. Sorry, I'm trying to eat donuts at the same time. Who wants to read? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. How long it takes me to chew a donut hole is how much it takes Mitch to load it up so we're even. Look at verse 18. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, now now this is why this is important. This is the institution of the covenant. Some people have said in Genesis 12, whenever God called Abram to leave his family and go to a place where he'd show him that that was the covenant. It's not. That was a precursor to the covenant. But once he got Abraham in the land, he showed him the magnitude of everything that was before him, And then he cut an unconditional covenant with them. Now watch this. To your descendants I have given this land. And here's the specification from it. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, Mitch, do we have a map that you can bring up here? Working on it? Okay, watch this. Verse 19. The Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. This is the only promise that remains unfulfilled out of the Abrahamic covenant. Which means that all of end times prophecy hinges upon this covenant that was made back in Genesis 15. So the fulfillment of prophecy is based on land. That kind of good is that the middle east somewhere is that mount sinai <laughs> have another donut but here's what we get 
the great river of Egypt. Which there's no mistake about that, right? It's the Nile. So notice, it gets all right up into Egypt's grill right there, right? And notice that it it stretches all the way across this expanse of land. Come with me, magic circle. To the river Euphrates, which notice it travels down and it empties out into the Persian Gulf. Now Ur, go up just a little bit. Ur, over this way. Down, right there. Ur... And Babylon is the place where Abram was called to leave in order to go over to the promised land. And if you remember what we talked about, you'll notice how destitute the landscape is right here. In fact, you can see from, from I mean, just the shading. I know our, our light bulb is not the greatest, but just the shading. It's called the Arabian Desert for a reason, because there's nothing there. So the way that he traveled is what is commonly known as the Fertile Crescent. He followed the river Euphrates all the way up to the, top, to the top to Padan Aram up there. And then he traveled it all the way down until he hit the Jordan River and traveled the Jordan River down into this area between Beersheba and Jerusalem. And that's where he was promised this land. This is where this thing is taking place at. So they've never been able to occupy this entire expanse of land. That is God's goal in history. It's one of his goals in history. Remember, The chief goal of history, of all of history that God has, is that God will receive all glory, honor, and praise. That's the whole idea. That's why when we read things like, in every knee on the earth and above the earth and under the earth will bow and they'll praise Him, every knee is going to hit the ground. Can you imagine somebody who never believed in Christ and your knee still is going to hit the ground one day and worship Him for who He is? What that is, is it's an achievement of the grand goal of all history, which is to give God glory. Well, the fulfillment of this land promise is one pie. I always think of it as, as a trivial pursuit piece, right? But it's one pie in the whole of the trivial pursuit piece. The whole is God's glory. Fulfilling of this covenant is one piece of the pie. Another one is, is the fact that salvation has been made to people. That's why we say that salvation is not the chief end all of all history. That's not what it is. It's one piece of the pie. All of it is to culminate in God's glory. And you will find that God is doing multiple faceted things that he will bring to culmination at the end. Most of all, he will be rescuing his people, Israel, from insanely, um, I don't know what else to say, except it looks like they're on the brink of extinction. And then he almost brings them back from the dead type of idea. So he is conquering over that. It's another piece of the pie. The fact that his son will reign all over Uh, over all things it's another piece of pie so it's all of these promises that he has in motion in order to bring it to the culmination of god's glory everybody got that okay so now let's go back to deuteronomy 9 notice the big factor that moses does not want them to mistake this for is the idea that somehow their merits have led them to be receiving of the land no it's not that it's the fact that they will be instruments in god's hand in order to exact judgment against a people who have earned it because of their ongoing sin. Moving on here. Notice that the heart is the problem. Your heart will think that once you've gotten into the land, it's because you were good good that God wanted you there. Your heart is going to try to justify to you, or your pride, we would say it this way, is going to rise up and say, well, it's because you were such a good person is the reason it happened. No, that's not the case whatsoever. And so here's what I want you to watch. Verse 6. Know them. It is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your Elohim is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people, stiff 
next. Does anybody have a different translation there at the end of 6? No? Okay, just want to make sure. You are... Thou art... Okay, so a little bit harder to read and understand. But notice, you are a stiff-necked people. That's what it's saying. How stiff-necked thou art, right? That's the new hymn they'll sing. So, verse 7. Notice what he says. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Now let me show you what Moses is doing. Sometimes we're told don't do this, okay? Now I don't know where this idea came from. Moses is going to dig up their old sins and show them to them. He is going to walk through their rebellious attitudes that they had had previously. And actually you find that by and large it is the generation beforehand. Now what we often say is, well the Lord has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he's drowned them in a sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered anymore. That means that God that doesn't mean that God doesn't know that they were there. That's important. It means that he is choosing not to hold them against you anymore because that is the essence of forgiveness. Whenever we are called to forgive other people in our life that have upset us, it is we're saying, I am willing to live with the circumstances that you have created in my situation and move on not holding that against you any longer. It doesn't mean that you forget. Otherwise, a lot of people wouldn't be alive. People that flee from abusive situations and they finally are able to forgive their abuser doesn't mean you go back and get in the situation and you treated it like it never happened. No! You realize that it happened, but you move on willing to bear the consequences. Anybody ever had somebody do something bad to them? Okay, every single person in this room. And you go on. And sometimes it's hard. But you go on. And why do you go on? Because you are making the choice to forgive. Well, I forgive them when I feel like it. You will never feel like forgiving them. Never. In fact, apart from the Holy Spirit, you and I do not have the capacity to forgive other people because they have rendered themselves time and again unforgivable. Oftentimes the offense against us is not the only offense that they've ever committed against us. And so that you find forgiveness has to be at least a continual thing, more than once. So we have to choose to forgive them and say, I'm willing to move on without holding this against you. But that doesn't mean people forget. Moses is bringing up their sins, and especially the sins of their generations past. Now, we know this, right? We have a common phrase that we, we pass around, right? Those who don't know history are what? Doomed to repeat it. We have got to know the past and where we came from, So because here's what you'll find. There's nothing new under the sun. The same mistake that we make today is the same mistake that was made 50 years ago that for some reason we did not learn from. Now, if you're in hermeneutics class, I have promoted something pretty heavily uh, to you guys. It is a four-volume set that was written at the beginning of the 1900s called The Fundamentals. Anybody heard of The Fundamentals before? The Fundamentals, and the, and the um, subtitle is called A Testimony to the Truth. And actually, it was two independent Christian businessmen 
that felt like there really needed to be something put together about conservative belief in the inerrancy of the Scripture and the foundational doctrines of Scripture, and then it needed to be freely distributed all over the world to pastors and missionaries and scholars so that they would have a written record of a culmination of the truth because liberalism was starting to infect the church. And they put out 300,000 copies of this four-volume set and they had many more requests that they had to turn around and reprint, but they couldn't afford it because the money ran out. So they gave it over to the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. It's known as Biola now. And here's what's sad about that is Biola, from what I understand, has denied the inerrancy of Scripture now where they're at. Uh, but in doing so, they ended up printing more and more and more copies of that and distributing that. Well, it's gone through reprints through Baker uh, Bible Publishing, I think is what's called, or the Baker, the Baker Publishing Group, something like that. You can find them on eBay, and they're normally between $60 to, uh, I've seen a, a set that's up to $253, I think is what it was, that you can get. But every once in a while, you can find them for $18.95 like I have. You can get them in there for $25.45. So I've been scouring the internet trying to find them. And the reason is, is because what they wrote at this time addressed the issues of straying from the Bible and the influence of sin and unbelief on the church in such an exact and succinct way that even though today people are putting on different Halloween masks and trying to call it something different, it's not. It's the same problems that these guys were addressing with the Scriptures back 100 years ago. And so it's incredibly relevant today. We just have to watch the connecting pieces. If you ever have an opportunity to get a hold of that set, do so if i was stranded on a desert island and could only take five books it would be my bible and all four of those volumes that's what it would be so they are valuable to have uh beyond compare there they are uh that's not it close nope the fundamentals the testimony of the truth is what it's called and it's edited by r.a tory yeah if you write in truth and tory you'll find it t-o-r-r-e-y there we go. What is that set? It's $9.99 on Kindle. It's $47.50 used. That one's $95 used. But that's it right there. Uh, yeah. You can get three of them new for $113.58. And that binding right there is the 1980 version of it that was printed. $54.99. So if you got a Kindle, yay you, right? That's good, 10 bucks. But I'm telling you, it, it's worth it to sit down and to read through it. And you'll get frustrated. You'll be like, good grief, why am I reading all this stuff? Keep reading. Keep reading. Have your Bible in one hand, read the book in the other, compare Scripture with Scripture, and you will be blown away because it's all about foundational, fundamental, unchanging doctrine of the inerrancy of the Word. It's excellent. It's an excellent group. Well, here's the thing. Moses is doing the same thing. Look at where your sin was. Look at what you did. And learn from it. Pay attention. Live wisely. See where your, your forefathers stumbled and then don't make the mistake. Avoid the hole. Don't step in it. And so notice he says here, verse 9, and this is, or sorry, verse 8. And, and real quick, verse 8 to verse, actually to the end of the chapter, but in particular to verse 19, is what we're going to focus on today and talk briefly about. And if, and if you wouldn't mind, please humor me. Uh, don't lie to me and tell me you did it if you didn't. But just humor me and throughout this week, go back and read this portion in Deuteronomy 9 again all the way up until 
uh, from verses 8 to 19. Read it a couple of more times because next Sunday after church, we are going to go to the actual events that took place and find what Moses left out of the account he refers to the people and find out just how bad this situation of the golden calf was. It's much, much worse uh, than what he lets on here. So, verse 8. What's that? Somebody say something? Okay. Verse 8. Even at Horeb, you provoked Yahweh to wrath, and Yahweh was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Let's put that in, in today's language. God was so ticked off, he was ready to wipe you out. He was ready to wipe you out. The extent to which you pushed him constantly. He got to the point where he said, enough. It was time to spank you. It was time to destroy you. Pretty strong words. Notice how he moves on here. Verse 9. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Now remember, this is talking about the conditional Mosaic covenant. Okay, This isn't talking about an unconditional covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. He says here, which the Lord, which Yahweh, had made with you. Then I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Now, stop. Before somebody, some famous preacher grabs this and tries to create a diet plan out of it, let's make sure that we understand what's going on here. This is all supernaturally done, okay? Try going 40 days without food and water. We're not making it to four hours that long, okay, uh, in, in a lot of cases. Uh, this was something that the Lord was supernaturally doing in Moses to bring him to some deep-seated humility. And the reason why this is is because after he has to engage the people of Israel because of their idolatry, he returns to the mountain and he fasts for another 40 days and 40 nights. It doesn't say that he stopped off at Burger King in between on his way down the mountain, okay? He spent 80 days, no food, no water. Now, our bodies cannot function like that. So I think it's important for us to realize there's something supernatural going on here that God is doing, okay? For 80 days to be without food and water. Now, somebody want to say something about that? I'm sensing antsy hands, no? Okay. What's that? That's what I'm thinking. Maybe I love barbecue too much. I don't know. But moving on. So notice, it's 40 days, no bread, no water. Verse 10, Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone. Now watch this. Written by the finger of God. Now that had to have been cool. Everybody think of Charles, Charlton Heston on the side of the mountain, right? And God said, right? Everybody remember those special effects? They're great. I love it. It's all, it's all on there. Uh, notice, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Now, if you want to write it there, go ahead. That is the event of Exodus 20, verses 1 through 20. And the reason why you need to know that is because it was a pivotal moment in world history. Israel is gathered at the bottom of the mountain, and God audibly spoke. If I recall the rendering in the movie, Cecil DeMille's movie, is the fact that when God said something, Moses is kind of up there and the tablets get emblazoned at that time. The, the tablets getting, getting written by the finger of God are in Exodus 32. Uh, I think 31 and 32. It doesn't happen in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is an event 
that takes place to bring attention to one thing. And that's the fact that when God speaks, His Word is authoritative. Remember we talked about in in Deuteronomy 4? Notice that you didn't see an image. You didn't see an idol. You didn't see something that looked like birds. You didn't see something that looked like people. None of that stuff. It was His Word that was paramount in that moment. Does everybody remember that? And everybody heard it audibly. Does anybody remember Israel's response after God was finished speaking? Anybody remember? What's that? Yeah. Moses, don't ever let God speak to us again. Because if he does, we'll die. Now, I can't grasp that. But think about it. That's their attitude when they were walking away in this situation. God stopped and they said, if that ever happens again, I'll, I'm done. My life will be taken from me, which shows how awesome God is. But to try to wrap our minds around their feeling at that time, notice, Moses, you be the intercessor for us from this point forward. But they heard God speak, and it was promoted His Word, His Word, His Word. In fact, notice how that's threaded throughout here. I made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you were up on the mountain, or I was up on the mountain with God, and He wrote down on the tablet the covenant that He was making with you, and He spoke these things, and His Word, all of that is just jumping off the page. Does everybody see that? It's all about His Word, His Word, His Word. The truthfulness of His Word, always. So now moving forward. Uh, let's see here, verse 11. It came about at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights that Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. There it is, His Word again. And that is the Mosaic conditional contract, okay? Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. Now notice that beforehand, God was, I'm the one who brought them out of Egypt. They are my people, my inheritance. In Exodus 3, he tells Pharaoh, they are my son who I am going to liberate from this situation. Now he's telling Moses, your people who you brought out, that's kind of like whenever Nathaniel does something and I'm like, your son did this, right? Well, notice, it's kind of like that same, don't play like you haven't done that, right? Your daughter said this word, you wouldn't believe. So that type of stuff, okay? Notice that he's doing that here. But look what he says, have acted corruptly. This Hebrew word for corruptly means to ruin something or to decay something. Think of the idea of the manna that they kept too long in the jar and it's spoiled with flies and rot. That's the idea. Israel is rotting itself from the inside out. Their their actions are spoiled. They're nasty. Notice it says here, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, they have made a molten image for themselves, idolatry. And Yahweh spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed, it is a stubborn people. It's the same idea in the end of verse 6. Stiff-necked people. Verse 14, Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Everybody realize what God's saying. I've had it up to here. Let's kill them all. I mean, essentially, that's what he's saying. And Moses, since you're the one who's been faithful in this whole situation, let's stick with you. Now think about this real quick because, number one, let's not pretend that God is some sterile, um, 
I don't know what else to say, emotionless God. He is very emotional. In fact, he's very emotionally invested in his people. When we read something like in Ephesians 5, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, that's God. Don't make him upset. Don't cause them to anguish because of the ongoing sin in our life. God is an extremely emotional being. So for him to be upset and to be verbalizing this to Moses is a big deal to show how relatable he is. Because you know what? I'm sure there's something in Moses that probably felt that way too. They're doing what? Oh my gosh. It's always real good when you know that havoc has taken place and you've got to go in and deal with it. Anybody enjoy walking into those conversations where you know I've got to knock heads just a little bit? I hate that. It's so awful when you have to deal with stuff like that. Because you just assume not. But notice, let's get rid of everybody. Moses, you've been doing pretty good. Let's start with you. Why is this a test? No. Why is this a test to Moses? Let's destroy everyone else in Israel and start over with you, Moses. Feed into his pride, possibly. What's that? He could have... How great would... God, that sounds pretty good. I am pretty righteous. I have been doing everything right. Things go bad, I fall on my face and I pray to you. Yeah, I've been out here for 40 years. Good grief. Let's get in this promised land. Let's do some good stuff. Yes, that's one of the, that's one of the arguments that's going to be given. But think about the future of this time. What tribe does Moses belong to? Levi. Say it, Paula. You know it. You got it. Where does that leave the tribe of Judah? Because who comes through Judah? Jesus. The scepter will not pass from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49? 49.7, I think it is. So notice, the fact that righteousness comes out of Judah's tribe. If you're to destroy everybody, you've destroyed the opportunity for the Messiah. So God, how could you say such a thing? Well, maybe God said such a thing because he was testing Moses and how Moses would respond. So now watch what Moses does. He says here, verse 15, So I turned and I came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire. And, and when we look at the other part of Exodus 32, you're going to find out what he left out in between him descending the mountain and God making this comment. It's very interesting. And he says here, uh, While the mountain was burning with fire, so notice the presence of God was visible to them, and two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord, your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf, and you had turned aside quickly. Everybody see that they keep bringing up the quickly turned aside, turned aside quickly. Because the warnings up to this point were, have been, don't turn aside quickly. Don't do that. So notice he's given an example of what not to do here. He says, uh, from the way in which Yahweh had commanded you. Verse 17. I took a hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. Now, Cecil DeMille's depiction of this is really epic because Moses is up on the side of the mountain and there's the calf. And boy, Moses had like biceps of steel, right? He threw those tablets and he hit that molten calf and it was just a great explosion that took place. Man, it was epic. It was. But think about it. The finger of God had actually written on these tablets. And he destroyed them. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did it partially because he was angry. We find that out later. But number two, Israel had already broken the covenant that God had established with them and that they had agreed to do. 
See, this is why the conditional nature of the Mosaic Covenant is so important. It is set up in an if-then pattern. If you will keep my word, then I will protect you. If you will esteem me as the only God, then I will provide for all of your needs. But as soon as you stop upholding your end of the deal, I will stop upholding mine. This is what makes this type of covenant different from the Abrahamic covenant that have no conditions on it whatsoever except for God's faithfulness to His Word. Does everybody see that? Does everybody everybody get why that's important? So notice, anytime Israel disobeys in this way, God is no longer obligated to protect them. He's not. He has been freed from all obligation because of Israel's unbelief and not maintaining fellowship. They're not abiding with Him. Everybody got that? Yes? Okay, good. Now watch this, verse 18. I fell down before Yahweh as at the first. Forty days and nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which Yahweh was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. Why does he say that time also? Because if you go back to chapter 9, in between verse 14, let me alone, and verse 15, so I turned and came down from the mountain, Moses intercedes for the people at that time as well. So Moses intercedes first between verses 14 and 15, but he doesn't document that for some reason. And maybe it's just a given that they're familiar with the story so they know. But notice in verse 19, he says, listen to me that time also. Now here's why this is important. Look at verse 20. Yahweh was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. He wanted to kill the priest. The priest that he had instituted, get him out of the way and get him done. Now that one could have been legitimate. Why? Because Moses is a Levite. Aaron's his brother. We'll just get another priest from you. You just step up as priest. In fact, he was the one who first instituted all the priestly services because God gave him the commandments, how to set up the tabernacle, how to go about offering everything, what offerings were acceptable, how you needed to dress, who you needed to commission to do these things. All of that was done through Moses to begin with anyway, so it's not like he wasn't familiar with it. But notice, he says here that he wanted to destroy Aaron as well, so I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. If God is omniscient, do your prayers matter? I get so tired, number one, of people abusing the, the, the word sovereignty when, when speaking of God. Because what is being portrayed by and large by a lot of people today as far as, well, God is sovereign, means that no one can do anything apart from what He desires them to do or has made them do, and then they all of a sudden want to stick sin in there as something that God has made sure that everybody does to accomplish their purposes. And it's insane. It violates the basic attributes of who God is. People have gotten way out there with their thinking. But here's what we also see. The prayer of a righteous person avails much. That is a promise in Scripture. God actually listens to prayer. Can God be all-knowing, everywhere present, and all-powerful, and never-changing? and yet still respond to our prayers. Yes, absolutely. History is not so set in stone that God cannot deviate 
from whatever we think his plan is. I promise you, whatever we think his plan is, that's probably not what it is. In fact, I would say to look at it this way, and I've used this illustration with some of you before. It is messed up to think that a timeline with God is like this. We're here. We're going to end here. That's the way it's going to be. God's already got it all set up. That's the only way it's going to go. And we can't do anything other than what God has already set up to do. Have anybody ever heard that before? It's God's plan. It's unchanging. That's what's going on. That limits God. It limits God and it arrests from us any responsibility to be answerable to Him. Because all of a sudden it doesn't matter what we do. God's going to do whatever He wants to do anyway. So what's it matter? If I sin, I'm complying with God's timeline. Why? Because if it wasn't part of His will, I wouldn't have sinned. All of a sudden we can blame God for it. Everybody see that? But if we're personally responsible for our sin, then what are we actually saying? We're saying that God does have an end in mind. We know that because of prophecy. Otherwise, you couldn't trust anything prophetic in the Scriptures. But the decision-making process is more like this. The fact that you can choose any decision that you want to make in any situation in the timeline of history moving forward, and because God is omniscient and omnipresent and all-powerful and unchanging, He is perfectly and completely prepared to address any situation of which we choose And it does not thwart his overall plan whatsoever. He is there to meet us where we go astray. Or he is there to reward us and help us along where we remain obedient. What does that tell me? It tells me that when I take the time to pray, it matters. It tells me that when I sit down, if I have dealt with my heart before the Lord, notice it doesn't say the prayer of a sinful person avails much. That's not the idea. We know that everything that Moses sought to do in his life was to be humble before the Lord. Well, that's no different with us now. If our heart's condition before the Lord is not one of seeking purity and desiring for His will over our own, we shouldn't expect Him to answer anything. However, if we understand our place before an almighty creator, and here's the thing, guys, it probably wouldn't kill some of us sometimes to get down with our faces on the floor and lay out prostrate on the floor before the Lord. Because a lot of people in the scripture did that. I don't think they did that because that's just the way they worshiped back then. They must have been part of the emergent church. I don't think that's the situation. I think the reason why they did that is because they realized this is where I deserve to be before a holy God. This is how I need to humble myself. Well, that seems weird. All the more reason why we should do it. We might learn a lot. And notice, if we are thinking correctly about ourselves and have dealt with ourselves correctly before the Lord, if we had judged ourselves so that we would not be judged by Him, then we can ask Him for anything that we want, trusting that He will answer. Why? Because we are abiding in Him. We are in fellowship with Him. And what He desires is going to be the utmost request of our heart as well. Does that make sense? That's how it was with Moses. So in between this time, number one, think about where you are in your prayer life and your personal approach to God. But number two, if you would read Deuteronomy 9, verses 8, where it talks about at Horeb, uh, all the way down to verse 19 a couple of times this week, and that way when we get together, we can touch it briefly and we can go to Exodus 32 and deal with, with all of the situations that fill the gaps where Moses didn't give us information. Sound good? Okay, great. Anybody got anything before we pray? Okay. Father God in heaven, I pray that you would please uh, examine our hearts. Help us discern if there is anything unclean in us. Forgive us where we fail you, Lord. 
Please protect our minds from the suggestions of the enemy. Pray, Father, that we would think to take every thought captive unto Christ. That we would hold every philosophy and direction in obedience to your word. That we would know your word and be indwelt with your word to such a point to where the Holy Spirit is constantly using it to conform us to the image of Christ. Thank you, God, that you have given us a capacity to live in your righteousness, Lord, not because of anything good that we have done, but because you are a merciful and wonderful God. Please bless our day. Pray, God, keep us safe in the weather. May we trust in you always. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. If you wouldn't mind to help with the chairs, we'd very much appreciate it. We're a little short-handed today.